Welcome to the Quilting Arts Podcast, where we take a deep dive into the world of contemporary art quilting. I'm Susan Brubaker now. And I'm your co-host, Vivica Hanson-Denegri. Welcome, Susan. It's so great to see your smiling face again on the screen. Yes, you too. Good to see you again. Yeah, so we've just had a really nice long weekend, haven't we? It's been Labor Day weekend. What did you get up to this weekend? Well, we got a new garden shed, so we were out moving things, reorganizing things. We're coming up, or I guess we just passed nine months having been in our new house, and we are still getting rid of things and moving things around, and it's like Tetris here. Tetris or birth? (laughs) I'm thinking it's birth because it's been nine months, so you're birthing a garden shed? Yes, yes. It's going to be really great. I've had to get some organizational things for it. Um, and some things have moved into my studio again. So my studio is a mess. So it's um, I feel like it's never going to end, but I know eventually we'll get there. Well, it's nice to have things that you want in a certain space, like having that garden shed. My husband built me a garden shed a few years ago. It's so cute. You know, it's just adorable and it's right near my great big vegetable garden and it houses all of our tools and everything. So I guess it is sort of like my studio, but it's my outdoor studio. It's your gardening studio. My gardening studio. And I moved a lot of perennials around this weekend too. So I've got the dirt under my fingernails to prove it. Well, it just kind of goes to show that, you know, you need spaces for different functional parts of your life. The way you need a kitchen for cooking, you need the garden shed for your lawn and your outside maintenance and your garden, and you need a studio, a place to work. Yeah, that's so true. And, you know, I was just thinking if I ever redo my studio, which I don't think is going to happen soon because I, uh, we just built on my, uh, we sort of sectioned off a portion of our house for my studio about three or four years ago. And I love it and it's beautiful and everything, but there's no room for video and there's no room for podcast recording. So um, I'm actually putting in our show notes, a little picture of the um, group of us who are on this recording right now. And it's our producer, you, me, and our artist in residence is listening in on this part too. And I just snapped a little uh, screenshot of what we look like. But, you know, I see this beautiful background for you where you've got artwork behind you and everything. And then if you see me, it sort of looks like, I don't know, I'm sort of like behind a whitish quilt. And the reason for that is when you do audio recording, which I'm doing a lot of now, you have to have a good place that absorbs all the noise. And because I have such a high ceiling in my studio, I've actually made a tree fort kind of, or a blanket fort cave to do my recording in. And I was just, it was so funny because I was just uh, picking up my email this weekend and Austin Cleon had put a a blog post out about recording an audio book and he did it in a closet. And I thought, okay, if he can do it in a closet, I can do it in my little fabric cabinet. So in, in front of me is a fabric cabinet and behind me is a quilt. Well, I know a lot of quilting teachers who have had to start doing all their classes online, working with quilting guilds and other locations that, you know, offer classes that are having to set up studios. They're having to buy the AV equipment and figure out how to make it work and to find the space. And it does mean sometimes having to rearrange things or clean up things or change the configuration of where they work and how they work. It's it's almost like, you know, the digital revolution that hit us, yeah, it's- what, about 20 to 30 years ago. Now we're going through another phase of that because of coronavirus, I think, and how much it's changed everything in the way we do things. I think it's a workplace revolution because I can't imagine going back 100% to what we were before. I think we'll go back Mm. to offices and to studios and things like that, but I don't think it's going to be exactly the same. 
And a lot of people have realized that it's really great to have some flexibility in that home studio, whether it's the home studio for art or the home studio for recording and teaching and things like that. So it might actually be something that we see more. But I know it's really difficult now to get that uh, like video and audio equipment that was you know, just sort of out there before and seemed to be a specialty item. And now everyone seems to have those little Lumi cubes, things that light up your face when you're on your Zoom calls and, and stuff like that. So I know that things have definitely, definitely changed. Yeah, it's huge. Just in a year. Not even. It hasn't even been a year. And I think about, you know, my kids doing so much online too and college online. It's all changing. But one great thing is that you and I do have studio spaces and we do have what Virginia, what was that quote from Virginia Woolf? Virginia Woolf said, a woman must have money and a room of her own if she is to write fiction. I think a woman or a man must have money and a space of their own if they are supposed to do anything. (laughs) You know, money certainly helps, but I think what we're talking about here really is the space and the designated location to do what is important to you and to have that space for deep work and thinking and creativity. So I'm really excited that our podcast today is going to explore that need and that real necessity of having that place of your own. And we're going to be bringing in our artist in residence in just a moment here, Jane Davlia, who's going to talk about creating that kind of a space for not only herself, but for other artists as well. Yeah, what she's doing is amazing. I'm so excited to hear more about it because I've been following her for years. Me too. So let's take a quick break and we'll be right back with Jane Davlia. media artist Jane Javua is creating an artist haven in an old corset factory in Bridgeport, Connecticut. This is the second space she's renovated for a group of several dozen visual artists and musicians. She'll share her thought process, helpful tips for figuring out how to design your best creative space, and stories about the agonies and ecstasies of building this huge new home for artists. Jane is a fiber and mixed media artist who teaches art quilting, printmaking, surface design, and art business workshops extensively across the U.S., online, and internationally. She's appeared numerous times on Quilting Arts TV and has written three best-selling books on the topics of art quilting and surface design. Jane works from the studio of an old factory in Bridgeport, Connecticut, and she's my neighbor. Welcome, Jane. Welcome. Hey. Thanks. So great to be here. So now both you and your husband, Carlos, who's a sculptor, right, have studio space in a building that you've worked on for years and years. And now you're moving. So tell us why and how. (laughs) (laughs) So the building that we're in now is um, it was a locomobile factory. And that is a precursor to a car that was run on coal. Hmm. I had no idea. Oh my goodness. Yeah. So there's a there's a pretty big history of locomobiles before it was overtaken by gasoline powered cars, because way more practical than having something on fire inside <laughs> of your car that needs to be fed all the time. And we moved into that building um, and joined that art community in 2013. So seven years ago now. And when we first moved in, there was only one space available and we shared it. And we shared it for about almost two years, a year and a half, two years. Until and you're still married? And we are. 
<laughs> you know, and our our um, mediums are not very compatible because he works in oil painting and sculpture with metal and wood, which is messy and sawdusty and kind of dirty. Loud. And loud. And I work in fiber and printmaking, which tend to be quieter and neater and cleaner. So when the opportunity came that the person next to us had moved out and that studio was available, he moved over. He had way less stuff than I did. So it made sense for him to move rather than for me to move. Just thinking about packing up a studio is a very daunting uh, kind of a thought. So he moved. Um, and so since then, we've we've been in, in next to each other. The current building has uh, 29 studios and about 34 artists, 35 artists. And um, it's, it's part of an organization that's been around for 25 years. I've been the managing director of it for the last six years and um, have run the events and the gallery and all sorts of, you know, kind of wrangled the artists and come up with professional development ideas for them, work on the website, kind of all of that stuff. And as is true of most situations where artists have space in old, inexpensive factories, we'd like to make it look better. Mm-hmm. And and that's kind of the age-old problem of any arts neighborhood that you can ever think of starting, you know, forever. But, you know, examples would be um, Baltimore, Philadelphia, um, Soho, Chelsea, uh, Dumbo in Brooklyn, that once the artists are in an area and they're starting to fix up the buildings and they look really cool, people start to see the potential where before they just saw a rundown building and crime and... You know, so I think the, the the problem always is that an artist needs a space that is large, that has a lot of light, and that is really cheap, <laughs> right? So in order to do that, you have to give some things up. And one would be neighborhood, and the other would be price. And because we needed to have cheap, we weren't in a great neighborhood to start with, but the neighborhood is better. And once the landlord saw the potential of the building he wanted to raise the rent by an exorbitant amount. And so in order to protect the community and what we've been building up for so many years, we started looking for a new building. And we had a wish list, obviously. We wanted more spaces because we've always had a waiting list. And it had to be cheap. It had to be tall, um, you know, tall ceilings, lots of light, a manageable type of renovation, and some outdoor space would be nice. Right now we have the second floor of a three-floor building, and we share the elevator, the freight elevator, and we have no outdoor space at all. The new building actually has outdoor space, but we looked at, oh, I would say 25 buildings all over the city. Um, I have climbed over more raccoon poop than you can. <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> <laughs> Um, you know, through more spider webs. And you really, really have to use your imagination when you look at these old buildings. And, you know, it's one thing to look at the the bones of the building and say, this would be a beautiful building for an art studio. But you also have to be really practical with the amount of work that needs to be done and the length of time it would take to complete that work. And there were buildings that we saw that were gorgeous in the perfect part of town, but they would have needed a million dollars of restoration. And it would have been totally worth it, but nobody had a million dollars. And it's very hard to find money to do projects like that. The organization I am part of is not a nonprofit. We joke that we're a an almost profit. <laughs> um, <laughs> we're like a break even. <laughs> so we're, we're what's known as colloquially as a social enterprise. So we exist for the benefit of society 
but are not a nonprofit. So we can't take advantage of grants or other things like that. But we also would never lose control of the organization either. So it was that that part of it's always been really challenging, the funding part of it. So we did. We went through a whole heck of a lot of buildings and looked at a whole bunch of things. And we did finally find a factory that, um, so we were going from 25,000 square feet to 34,000 square feet, from one floor to three full floors with small outdoor space in a, an area closer to downtown, which is good. So it's good for commuting and, and lots of other things. The neighborhood is up and coming. It's actually the neighborhood I live in. So I'm happy it's you know three blocks from my house. <laughs> so the commute's going to be great. <laughs> I can't wait for that. Um, it was a mile before, so now it's three blocks. And it, just the process has just been really interesting. The original building, my studio, th- that factory where I am now, um, the current place, had been the locomobile factory. Then during World War II, it manufactured the casings for artillery shells. So not the explosive part, but the outside part. And then after that, until they went bankrupt in the 80s, it was an aerosol can factory. So um, not the insides again, but the outsides. So it sort of sounds like you're able to think about the history of the building as well and think about how you work and how you fit into the community. And that seems to be a wonderful thing to be able to do this. Now, I've been to several um, several of the artist studios in Bridgeport, but I've never been to yours. My understanding, though, is that this new building you're going to be moving into relatively soon, right? Within the next couple of months, yes. Yeah, construction's still going on. How will your new studio be different from your older studio, your personal space that you're setting up? It'll be about the same size. My current studio is 620 square feet with 11 foot high ceilings. And my new studio, the main section of it is about 600 square feet with 11 foot high ceilings. But there's a like a an area off the side, not a closet, but a, an a adjunct working area that's about 200 square feet. So it'll be entered through a door on one side. And that will give me a little bit of storage, but it'll also give me a place to do some woodworking because I do like to build furniture as well. And, you know, as I said before, sawdust and fabric is not compatible. (laughs) So I'll be able to keep those two things separate from each other. But 200 square feet isn't big. And I also assume that you have some sort of a wet space as well. No, there's actually very few of the studios will have sinks in them. Um, Partly because if you think about you think about artists who are not the neatest people in the world, and um, and you think about old buildings, you would not necessarily want to be working in a space where somebody had a sink directly on top of you because it might leak. So we have designed the buildings so that there are two slop sinks on each floor, and they're centrally located. Um, right now, we have two slop sinks for our entire building, and you just have to walk. And and actually, I in the beginning, I was kind of annoyed but I love it because it gets me out of my studio. It makes me walk around. I could bump into people and say, hey, how are you doing? Um, what are you working on? I'm running the art supply store. That bumping into people part is interesting to me too, because I've never worked in a group space with other artists. What do you personally get out of that communal experience of being an artist in a facility like yours? So there's a lot of different things that can happen. It doesn't necessarily mean collaboration, right? It could. So you could work with another artist in creating a piece of work. But for the most part, what it is is a sense of, of togetherness, community, not being alone, having somebody to be able to ask 
an opinion about. Like mm. our building has people who weld and people who paint and, um, you know, people who do printmaking and photographers and musicians. And so the energy of that, I find amazing. So even on a day when you go in and you may not feel particularly inspired, you may see somebody else's new work hanging up, or you may have a conversation with somebody that sparks something. And we, our system has always been pre-corona that if you were willing to talk to somebody, you left your door open. And if you were working and you wanted to be alone, you left your door closed. And so the way I've always imagined it is when I'm in my studio and my door is closed, it's quiet. I'm working, I've got my radio on and I'm doing my thing, but I have a sense of the creative hum of the building. Hmm. And it's sort of like being a bee in a hive. And so you have this, it, it kind of lifts you up and it, it creates an energy that you don't get at home. It's an energy that, you know, that everyone else is creating and they're all creating around you and it boosts your creative levels as well. So I'm sort of smiling thinking about the creative hum of the building and the thought of being in a hive, because when I think about your artwork, Jane, that you use (laughs) insects so frequently as an image in your artwork and your printmaking that um, I can just see you creating these and just sitting there thinking, oh, I'm the queen bee right now. And everyone (laughs) around me is (laughs) bringing me inspiration in their, you know, in their pollen sacks or whatever, Um, you know, just to extend that metaphor. But, you know, it's also sort of like when you go to a library and my pet peeve about going to a library at times is that the older I get, it seems like the fewer books are there, you know, that libraries exist for more than just books now. But when I go to a library and I go into the section where I'm looking for a book on bugs or something, it's not the book that I'm looking for that I need. That's the book that I want. But the book that I need is the book next to it or that I walk by on the way. And so it's that serendipity that you need in a library, but it sounds like you're getting that kind of a inspiration. Um, when you're in your studio as well. Yes, definitely. And I think too, it's it's sort of like, um, if you think about the confluence of all the knowledge of all the people too, you know, you know how to do certain things, other people know how to do certain things. You may have a question about Instagram and somebody else is bound to have the answer for it. You may need a widget for something and somebody either has it or knows where to get it. And it's immediate. It's not like you have to, you know, email all your Facebook friends and say, what do I do about this? It's it's an immediate thing that you can just find out. The community is also very supportive. And if someone has an opening, we'll all go to the opening. If somebody's running to the art supply store, you know, kind of a call goes out. I mean, there's a list that's generated and the person runs and gets everything. So there's a cooperative spirit, I think, that you you see there than you that you don't see anywhere else. And Many years ago, you know, 30 years ago, my husband and I had a studio in an old schoolhouse in New York, and it was very small. There were only nine studios, but I liked a lot of it, a lot of parts of that, that experience, and there were parts of it I did not like. There were a lot of personality clashes, and so when I took over as the manager, I very intentionally created a no drama zone because artists have very strong personalities. And, and it's important that, you know, people get along and, you know, the, you have to keep in mind, like people are paying rent and they're there to work. And so the environment needs to be able to support each of us to be able to get our work done. All right, let's just take a quick break and we'll be right back. Hey, 
Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. So do you actually interview people, um, interview the artists before, and how? who makes the decision as to who's allowed in or who is not allowed in or who's on the waiting list? So we have an application process and we have a selection committee. And the selection committee is made up of five artists. And we do interview people. Um, Pre-COVID, we would interview them in person. Now we interview them on Zoom. And, and, you know, it's pretty basic. I mean, the things that we're looking for, people are willing to participate in the types of things that we do, like events that are open to the public four or five times a year. We're looking for people who have a really good attitude and people who are very respectful. Because if you don't respect the people next to you, that causes problems. You could you know, be doing something that's really smelly or dangerous, or you could be making an excess amount of noise, or you could not be careful with other people's artwork. So respect is huge. Professionalism is huge. And we want to make sure they're using the space. You know, they're not using it as an office for a different type of business or storing things. You know, that's like one of my really big things is, you know, you shouldn't be using it to store things. And I've discovered over the years that and this has happened multiple times, that sometimes people will say, I'm going to rent a studio and it's going to force me to make my art, right? Because they have this burden now, this obligation, they have rent and it's going to make them go to their studio and it's going to make them make their art. And in, I think probably the six or seven times I've seen that thing happen over the years, I have never seen the result that that person wanted. Usually within a year or six months, they've ended up moving out because they're not using the space and they, you know, start to feel badly because they're not, they're, they're paying their rent and they're not using it. And so honestly, there's an underlying reason that they're not getting the work done. There's something else or something in their family or in their head or something. So for me, that's a red flag. If somebody says, oh, I'm going to rent a space and it's going to force me to, to get some work done. So how much does it cost to rent? I'm sure depending on the size, but what's the price range if you're looking for an outside studio in your town? It depends. Like we're, there are four buildings in our town that have studios for rent and one building that has um, live work studios. So you could actually Mm -hmm. live in a giant loft and work in it as well. And um, they usually go for about, I want to say, between a dollar and two dollars a square foot per month. And some buildings include utilities, some buildings don't include utilities. There are often expenses that you don't count on, like um, you need commercial insurance, you need liability insurance, because it is a commercial building. And in Connecticut, at least, um, if you have um, a business, you know, a, a, if you're renting something in a commercial building, then you're considered a business and you need to be paying property tax for, you know, personal property tax. So, you know, which amounts to a whole whopping $40 a year. But still, uh-huh. you know, like you have to, you're, it forces you to treat what you're doing more seriously as more of a business than you would if you were working at home. So when you open up the Nest, is it still going to be called Nest or is it, because that's your, that's your group of artists is called Nest. Yeah. Nest Arts Factory. How many people are moving in as soon as they can get into the building? Everybody but one, actually. Which is how many total? 
So there's 29 people moving in. We've already interviewed and have more people um, coming along with us. And so there's we're going from 21 to 40, uh, 29 to 41 studios. There are five studios left at this point. That's it. Wow. Which is kind of cool. Um, I'll save one for you, Susan, if you want. And Vivica, you can have the one next to it. I told you if I moved up there, yeah, I would love that. I can say I just wish that that we were just a little closer. I joked in the beginning <laughs> saying that we were neighbors, but our neighbors, uh, you know, it's probably about 40 miles, but it's 40 miles of traffic, heavy traffic. And so it's an hour plus exactly. probably, <laughs> which is, you know, which is sort of neighbors, I guess, in, in uh, today's terms. But, yeah. you know, it seems to me when I'm thinking about having a studio outside of my home, that there's a luxury to that. And I know that you probably don't think of it as luxury because it's a necessity for you and your business. So there's, there's that difference between necessity and luxury. For me, it would be the luxury of space and being able to fit in that full-size long arm that I would just love to have to work on when I make my large quilts. But um, when I think about a home studio, I think there's a luxury to that as well, because like we were talking about with Virginia Woolf in a room of one's own, it's it's a space that I can call my own and carve out for myself. And I really have been very, very lucky to have this space that is not only my studio, but also my office. And um, these days, my podcast studio as well. You know, so there's that luxury too. Do you feel like sometimes you miss out on having a studio in your own home? Well, I certainly did when the lockdown started because everything was at the studio and nothing was at home. So it's interesting having had both experiences and kind of having it bookended at the beginning of my art career and now um, and working at home in the in between. When I was work when I first started working at home, my studio was a closet. It was a literal closet. It was about two feet deep and six feet wide with bifold doors in the front of it. And my daughter was a toddler, you know, and, and that worked great for years. And then we moved to a larger house and I ended up with a small bedroom. And then we moved to another house and I ended up with a very large sunroom. And that house also had a barn and that was my husband's studio. And we're nightmares for real estate because we need two studios um, it's hard enough finding one studio space in a house, but it's uh, impossible to find two studio spaces. So we lived in that house for, um, you know, 10 years or so. And by then, um, our daughter was older and she was off on her own. And so we made the conscious decision to look for a small place to live and large studios to work in intentionally, intentionally separating the house from the studio. Um, and so that's a choice. You know, that's a choice we made. We simplified a lot of things. We moved into a much smaller place. Um, so we live in a, we live in a loft as well. Um, also a corset factory and there's a lot of corset factories around here. Um, but this one is condos. Um, so we live in a, in a condo and it's great. Um, but I don't like it to be full of sawdust and oil paint and fiber. So it doesn't really have the working stuff in it other than a drawing table and some small things. But the that affords us the ability to have two larger studios outside of the home. And so, you know, I would imagine that our expenses combined would be like having a house. And so for me, I, that doesn't feel like a luxury to me. That feels like a shift and a choice that we made to be able to do that. And and we couldn't have done it when our daughter was little, you know, that that wouldn't have worked. But the way, you know, the, the way our life is now, the way we've set it up, the very, very intentional choices we've made, that's 
how we decided we wanted to live. And we moved from a suburb into a city um, because that's where the artist studios are, but also because we wanted a change in our lives. We wanted to live somewhere with a lot more diversity and a lot more vibrancy than where we were living. And, and all of those have been answered and we, we feel really fortunate to be able to do that. One thing I've wondered a lot about is, you know, you're an artist type, but you must also have a whole separate skill set. And I know you do because I know you, the management aspect. And it's like you're the contractor for this whole thing. Yeah, the project manager. Yeah, yeah. So where um, you're really combining those two things together. And it seems like a lot of artists would not have that. They need somebody like you to step in and do big projects like this. Well, you know, you know how you always talk, you always think about like the road not taken. So in my road not taken, I was going to be an architect. Ah. <laughs> yeah. So I've always had that like ability to think in 3D. And I've always had this real love and passion for interior design. And, um, you know, just like space management, space placement, um, how space is used. I, it's funny, you know, studios are a really personal thing. And there are people who have studios that are, you know, if you look at it from the surface, they're a mess, they're a disaster, there's stuff everywhere. But for them, that's the sweet spot of being able to create because they can see everything and they're inspired by it. And then there are other people who are more like me, where they need everything tidy and put away because it's too distracting. I need like empty spaces and white spaces so that I can focus on one thing at a time. And we used to joke, my mom and I, when we had a quilt shop in New York, we would joke because her desk always had a lot of things on it and my desk was always empty, that the inside of her head was very, very organized. And so she could stand having the outside of her, her head be more disorganized, whereas the inside of my head is super disorganized and there's like a million things going on in every minute with inspiration and everything else. So I have to control the outside of my (laughs) head and all all the stuff that goes on, like all the things that I see so that I don't get distracted. So when we first started looking for the building, I would you know, take measurements. I have a laser measure and I would take measurements and I would do a very, very rough plan to figure out how many studios we could fit in a space like that. And having come from the building where we are now and knowing like how big the hallways should be that are what's optimal for hanging art and having visitors come and stand there and being able to look back and, you know, how far should the bathrooms be? How big should the bathrooms be? Um, And some of that's like code. I know so much stuff about uh, freight elevator code in the state of Connecticut, ADA, you know, compliance with all sorts of things. Uh, so much information is like packed into my head that I never thought I was ever going to need. I'm been joking that I'm going to become a commercial real estate developer now. Or a consultant, at least to other artist groups in the state that want to do that. But being able to take basically a raw space, it had nothing in it but columns. That was it. They had nothing in it. It had never had, with the exception of very, very few, had no interior walls at all in this space. So it's 210 feet long and 56 feet wide. You know, how do you take that space and turn that into artist studios that will actually make enough money to pay all the bills um, and be what is needed, what's desired by the artists? How do you make sure you don't end up with too many tiny studios or too many giant studios? And so having the experience of managing the building where we are now for so many years, seeing which studios have high turnover rates, which ones have high retention rates, you know, lets you know 
people are in the big studios never leave. We haven't had turnover in big studios in six, seven years at all. Yeah, because once they get all their stuff in and they keep moving it in, then they can't go back. <laughs> and if you're making the commitment to that kind of cost, you're, you know, perforce more serious anyway. The little studios tend to be people who are kind of trying things out or maybe um, aren't really certain or they're waiting for a big studio. Or they're beginners. They're, they're younger and they're just starting out. Yeah. So, you know, and everybody's in a different place. We have everybody from, you know, brand new wet behind the ears graduates of art school and people who are in their 80s. So it's um, it's all over the place and everywhere in their careers, getting started, well-established, showing in museums. Um, and I think that's great for everybody. I think that it reminds all of us about what the journey is and and to be patient and to learn from each other. So, but, but having that, you know, that um, freedom to design a space from the ground up has really been amazing. And to be able to give it like the flavor that we want to be able to capture a little bit of the history of the building. Um, so we made some really, um, really cool choices uh, because the building's from 1907. That's classic high Victorian. And so a typical tiled floor, for example, would be tiny little hexagons right. in white, right? Mm -hmm. So that's something that you would see all over um, those types of buildings. And so what I chose instead was a large hexagon in a matte black finish. So that's more contemporary. The scale is a little bit different. And that hexagon is very quilterly of you too. And like bees. Right. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We're actually planning to have some beehives in the backyard. <laughs> Fun. I'm not surprised. I'm not surprised at all. <laughs> Urban beekeeping. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, and it has been fun. And there's, there is a sweat equity component to the project as well, where the artists have been asked to work on the building. Um, so we're getting ready to start thinking about the floors. So I have a list of people who are good at sanding floors, and that will be part of the job that we'll be working on. But we're also all working on our own studios. The brick is old. The paint is really old. We tested it for lead, so it's fine. Um, but it needed to be scrubbed and all the flakes come off. And then some people have left it like that. Some people are planning to expose it more in their studios. I chose to paint mine because of that visual distraction issue. I didn't want that like out of the corner of my eye, I wanted it just white where I just see texture and not anything else, no pattern or color. So we've been going in every Saturday so that we're out of the way of all the tradespeople. And we have the building to ourselves and we just, we work and we imagine what it's going to be like when we're in there and we're settled and we're actually working again. Well, it just sounds wonderful, Jane. And it sounds like not only is that sweat equity really going to pay off, but everyone will have this ownership in their space and the ownership in the final business, which is just an amazing thought. And I can't wait until I get the invitation from you that the nest is open and waiting for customers to come back. And that will mean two things. It'll mean, first of all, that all of your hard work has, been, has really come to fruition. And that second of all, I can leave my home and feel confident <laughs> leaving my home. So thank you so much for sharing this whole journey and exploration with us and for being truly an artist in residence because you are going to be an artist in residence again in your new Nest Factory. And I just think that's just such a wonderful, wonderful thing for you. Thank you so much. We're actually going to do an open house online to start with. And then when it's safe, we'll invite people in. I'll be there for both of them. You'll be the first <laughs> invitation. <laughs> Thank you, Jane.
Wow, Jane gave me so many things to think about and I'm so jealous <laughs> of the wonderful space she's creating. I've seen some of the pictures and um, what a wonderful thing that would be to be part of a community like that of artists and to work in the same space. Sounds really fun. That's the part that uh, really, really resonates with me too. The thought of being able to walk outside of my door and see other artists and be inspired by them. And, you know, it would be nice to have a long arm and to put a, a studio together that I could work in outside of my home. I do enjoy having my studio space so I can just come in and be creative whenever I want. But there's something to that. It, I think that separation of home and work is important. And that is part of what I think many of us are missing right now in the time of COVID. So. Yes. And the other thing is, I think, to have events, to have like those open studios and um, and openings if you have a little exhibition in your in your space so that you're bringing the public in and then you get to interact with them, maybe make more sales, create more connections in your community. It would be really great. Yeah, I was in a um, situation prior to working at Quilting Arts where I had I was part of an open studio tour. And I never felt comfortable doing it in my home. So I would schlep all of my artwork, my sewing machine for demos, et cetera, to our art center um, and do the demonstration and set up a studio there. But it was never the same as allowing people into my true studio to show what it was right. like. So I joined, totally I joined my local Orange County Artist Guild here uh, right before coronavirus hit. So we haven't been able to do those studio events, but they have an arts trail thing in the fall, like a lot of artist guilds do, where you can participate and have people come in through your house and or into a studio. And I'm hoping to be able to do that in the future, because I think it would be really fun to be part of that. It would. Yeah. So Susan, do you have a quote for us this time? I do. And this is um, by the Spanish painter, sculptor, and ceramicist uh, Miro. He said, I think of my studio as a vegetable garden where things follow their natural course. They grow, they ripen, you have to graft, you have to water. I love that, thinking of it as a garden too, and all the things, all the maintenance things you do in a garden to make things grow. Well, the one thing Miro did not mention is composting. You have to compost <laughs> as well. Take all those things that don't work and cut them up scrap them and make something new out of them. Well, this was a fascinating show. Thank you so much for being a part of it, Susan. And I'm really looking forward to our next artist in resident who will be Lynn Coolish. And she's going to be talking about layering and that'll be in our next episode. Great talking to you. Yeah, I can't wait. Thanks for listening. And remember, there's lots more information about things we discussed in this episode, including photos and links on our show notes page. Just follow the link in the description to our website, quiltingdaily.com. If you want to hear episodes as soon as they come out, please subscribe. Just search for Quilting Arts Podcast in whatever app you use, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. And when you do, please leave a rating and a review. We'd love to hear from you. The Quilting Arts Podcast is a production of Golden Peak Media. It's hosted by me, Vivica Hansen-Denegri, and Susan Brubaker-Knapp. This episode was recorded and edited by Chad Franzen. Sarah Erickson is our web producer, and our executive producer of podcasts is Jared Mayer.